Hello and welcome to Industry Elites. On this podcast, Industry Elites' very own Natalie and Vicky are going to be discussing the latest news trending around the world. began playing tennis at the age of eight and was a top-ranked player in every age group from 12 years of age through 18. He won the USTA National Championship several times. Inducted into his high school Hall of Fame, Justin also achieved extraordinary athletic and academic success while attending UCLA. In 1996, Justin earned academic honors while achieving the number one ranking in singles and doubles tennis while leading the number one ranked UCLA tennis team. He also won the 1996 NCAA Doubles Championship while maintaining a 4.0 GPA. After UCLA, Justin turned professional and competed at the ATP World Tour for 13 years. In 1998, he won the Australian Open and French Open Mixed Doubles Championship with Venus Williams. He represented the USA in the U.S. Davis Cup in 1998 and 2001. Justin achieved a career-high ranking of 63rd in singles and 18th in doubles while winning 17 titles. Justin retired in 2007 from the sport of tennis. He immediately transitioned to every facet of sports business, including broadcasting, production, talent representation, and brand management. Justin is passionate about philanthropy and is dedicated to the Justin Gibblestop Children's Fund, which has raised over $1 million for children-focused causes. Justin was recently honored for his charitable contributions by the Hope for Children Research Foundation as their 2020 Humanitarian of the Year. Justin is now president of the Financial Benefits Research Group, the FBR Group, a full-service insurance and financial management business. Justin is a proud father of his six-year-old son, Brandon. On today's episode of Industry Elites, Vicky and I are really excited to get the chance to talk to former professional tennis player and currently the president of the Financial Benefits Research Group, Justin Gimmelstop. We're going to be talking about his experience going pro and what his transition has been like going into the business world. So we're excited to have you. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. So we just want to see initially, Justin, how are you doing in quarantine? How's social distance treating you? Well, it's been a very interesting time. I mean, unprecedented. Um, If you think about it, I don't know that there's ever been a situation where every Every single person in the world is affected. I know, I know look, people compare this to the Spanish flu, but based on the population and the consequences and, and so forth, I don't know that it's necessarily a comp. I mean, every single person in the world, doesn't matter your socioeconomic standing, your location, your geography, your occupation, uh, your age. I mean, every single person. I mean, it's a very bizarre, unprecedented situation. Obviously, it's having catastrophic consequences on humanity and and the economy. But I am a believer, and this is probably from my sports background, I am a believer. First of all, I'm an optimist, and I'm a believer that chaos creates opportunities. I mean, if you look at the history of the world and some of the most uh, challenging times, there has been incredible innovation. There have been opportunities that come out of it. It's So you just have to try and see where the world's going, see how the world is changing. Every industry is challenged in a different way. And, you know, try and, even though it sounds kind of Pollyanna, try and make the best of the situation. Now, obviously, myself and some others and, you know, a certain group are in a little bit of a different situation. I I kind of narrow it down to three groups. If you're you're still in your home, you have enough food and your friends and family are healthy. I mean, that's Mm kind of now the demarcation point for, you know, where life is okay or or good enough. But also in a perverse way, I have to say, I mean, I'm a single father. I have a six-year-old boy. And I suspect that years from now, and I've talked about this with some other parents, I mean, years from now, uh, with everyone running a million miles a minute, like, you know, I'll look back at this and be like, wow, like 
I was able to see my son learn how to read and ride his bike for the first time and and see what I was see how we handled some challenges in school and see him interact with his friends on, you know, Zoom or just be around him more at a young age at such a formative time. For me professionally, it's also I also see it as an opportunity going into a new business a couple of years ago and, you know, having a unique a unique situation as a new business because it's actually an established business that my father established it's over 40 years old. So it has an existing business and clientele, me learning a whole new business. So managing all the old accounts, managing the office, learning the business and trying to create new business. So with everyone being stationary and while, you know, getting people to spend money or even think about money isn't that easy right now, it's still an opportunity to service clients and for me to learn about the business and all different parts of the business. And Zoom has made it very efficient to meet, you know, set up Zoom calls with yeah, professional groups and network groups. I mean, so every day I'm either speaking to clients, auditing policies, studying different things online, you know, Zooming with estate planners or CPAs or business managers. So just once again, just trying to do the do the best I can with uh, this situation. And let me put it this way. When I hear a lot of people complaining that there's not enough on Netflix, that's not a situation that I'm, I'll just figure out how to try and come out of this uh, best prepared. So it sounds like you haven't really had any hindrances with quarantine. Have you found this has kind of given you more time? per se like not necessarily more time because you sound incredibly busy but more time to kind of stop and think to establish things in a better direction in a more creative approach completely i mean i'm 43 years old uh this is by far not even close no hyperbole the most i've been in one place at a time my whole life i mean i've traveled wow. being a professional athlete tennis traveling around the world. And then as soon as I retired, getting involved in sports business and production and TV and sports entertainment, I, I there has never been, not even close a period of time where I've been in one place this long. So being able to establish a routine, I mean, obviously I've definitely had effects with quarantine, not being able to spend as much time with friends and family. And obviously, like I said, the economy is in a brutal place, but in terms of being able to manage my day and manage my schedule and try and do things that maybe you've been pushing off. I mean, even, even your own health. I mean, getting into even a, a sleep routine, which is so tough to do when you're traveling so much, you know, working out, looking at your health, looking at things that maybe, you know, are you put on the back burner because you're just, you're churning at such a quick rate. I mean, it's just, it's a bizarre time. It's I'm, I'm not like one of those fate, everything happens for a reason people, but like, mm -hmm. It there does seem like a weird type of world. It's like a mandatory timeout, like a the like yeah the the world healing in a way. Like it's like some sort of unique. I think it's going to be one of the most unique periods in in history. We'll be talking. I think people will be talking about this for generations and generations to come. It's definitely something for the history books. That's for sure. Vicky and I were talking about it previously, and we were saying that this will be something incorporated into the books, and then it's going to be interesting looking back when kids are going to come to us and be like, "Oh, what was that coronavirus?" virus that happened like 20, 30 years ago. And we're like, oh my goodness, you don't even know. <laughs> and I'll tell you this, like in, in the business with FBR group, we cover all, all forms of insurance. So if it's indemnifiable, we do it. Anything from private client insurance, high net worth people with expensive jewelry, or art collections or homes or cars or private planes, boats to high level life insurance policies to group medical insurance. One of the challenges in insurance is trying to explain to people the value of mitigating risk and it's conceptual. You know, other things, other products that people sell are are tangible, a car, a house, a tennis racket, a even, you know, a vacation, a, you have this type of room at a hotel. 
there's no time in the history, I mean, for this generation and numerous to come once again, that are not going to be very conscious or very scarred by the concept of mitigating risk. So whether it's your health, whether it's your money, whether it's being diversified, whether it's whether it's life insurance, health insurance, loss of value insurance, business cancellation insurance, people are at least going to understand it. Whether they buy it or not, that's going to be the other decision. Whether they buy into it or not. But, you know, my father was a high school basketball coach that started a business from scratch with no experience. And, you know, as, as I've taken this over, I, I never even knew I he was teaching me. I never even knew I absorbed some of the things he said. But I do remember him saying in terms of insurance, like you spend one to two percent to protect the 98. Like that's essentially the concept. And think about now if, you know, obviously everything is everything is easy in hindsight. But I mean, think about, you know, if they if more people bought into that concept, and obviously this is not a fair thing to say in this situation, because how do you prepare for something that's never happened? But, you know, it's uh, it's a, just a very interesting time. But like I said, in every industry or whatever it is, you, you better try to figure out where things are going because they're not going to be the same. Uh, so with that, you're kind of mentioning the changes in insurance. Do you think going forward, this is going to kind of create almost COVID insurance or it's going to pivot to kind of have, you know how you have like act of God and all those other kind of levels of insurance for like your vehicle or something. Do you think they're going to do that for health insurance? It's going to have like a clause for these type viruses going forward or? Well, the interesting part, first of all, luckily, uh, fortunately, and I think it's a great sign that health insurance has been covering COVID, which I think is, uh, which obviously is needed and should happen. And but not everything in life that should happen does. So that's a positive. Other forms of insurance, I think it's going to be the opposite. I think that they will have carve outs for this because insurance companies couldn't survive this. If, if everyone, I mean, every single, just think about it. If everything, let me put it this way. There's 60, there's over 62 tennis tournaments in the world. Only one tournament had a form of insurance that was comprehensive enough that covered what's happening right now. And it's not because they specifically covered against pandemic. It's because their policy was broad and aggressive enough that it didn't carve out certain things, which means obviously the premiums were higher. But, you know, that tournament is Wimbledon and they have other unique circumstances as well. For example, they have a queen. A queen is, mm -hmm. you know, very old. If, if God forbid send them to the queen, it's such a unique situation. I wouldn't be surprised if they had to cancel the tournament or cancel a couple of days for that. So the past 20 years, they've paid almost $40 million in premiums you know, and they covered up to $150 million. So they got $150 million not to play Wimbledon this year. But they still are going to make a lot less money than they would if they played. I'll give you another example on the other side of that, the U.S. Open. So the U.S. Open has about $400 million in revenue. They used to have insurance because they didn't have roofs. So if you lost a session, so example, if it rained, they had insurance, loss of session insurance. The rule was if you played less than an hour and you had tickets, you got it refunded. If you played an hour and one minute, you didn't. So now, but years later, the U.S. Open has a bunch of roofs, so they're not vulnerable to having to repay their patrons or their consumers. So they decrease their insurance. So now, if they don't have the U.S. Open, they're on the hook for $400 million. I mean, that's all of it. I mean, if college football doesn't play, I mean, I don't know if people understand, you know, college football and college basketball fund the whole athletic department. You know, if you don't have college football, there's a very good chance that most non-revenue college sports will be shut down, at least for a period of time. The consequences of this are so severe, but moving forward, you know, think about it. Every tennis tournament, every concert, every event, every single thing, every event, every live event you would suspect is going to require or need some form of insurance. Now, obviously, it's going to have to be affordable and it's going to have to, and that's what I'm working on right now, kind of packages, whether it's for sporting events or entertainment events or studios with movies, or for example, you know, 
acts in Vegas, for example, if you have, I mean, they already have this where you insure against concerts. And when Justin Timberlake goes on, it announces a 200 city concert tour. Okay, they've already been insuring against that. Britney Spears signs a 200 appearance at the Caesars Palace. They insure against that if she gets hurt or something happens. So that's a lot of that has been the foundation of insurance. Now it's just, people are just going to be way more conscious of it. So once again, I'm just trying to be use this time to be best organized. You know, that's what I'm doing. But it's it's a bizarre time. I mean, it's, it's like you go outside sometimes and living here in L.A., it's like it used to take 20 minutes to go down uh, two blocks to get a cup of coffee. Now it's like it looks like a Western movie. But that being said, I mean, here in L.A., I mean, people are, a lot of people are out, you know, they're they're with masks, but they're working out. It's one of the benefits of being here in L.A. It's beautiful. So you could you could run, you could jog, you could at least, you know, be outside and, and feel healthier. But I feel badly for people that are recouped, you know, cooped up in small areas it's i can understand going you know going stir crazy so it's it's just it's a bizarre time and also i mean and i am not going to get political because it's there's no upside in that but obviously the fact that this is this it has a significant political component that's kind of dividing the nation as well is is unfortunate at least you guys have the sun i would have to say about that we have to say we are very jealous by the sun and at least getting to go outside for long periods of time so obviously we were talking a lot about the initial aspects of insurance and how that plays into effect via Corona now. But I think we should maybe, we'll take a couple steps back and maybe go into what it was before you were in the insurance life and maybe starting off with some aspects of your tennis career and what potentially drew you to want to play tennis professionally. Well, it's interesting. So my family is very sports oriented. My dad and uncle both played college basketball. My dad was a high school basketball coach. My uncle was a college basketball coach. Uh, my uncle was Bobby Knight's assistant at Indiana and then college coach at the head coach at George Washington. My dad was won two state championships coaching in New Jersey. So we all had a sports background. I'm one of three brothers. So I'm a middle boy. We were just everything basketball, baseball, soccer, you name it, we played it. But no one in our family had ever hit a tennis ball. None, zero, no tennis exposure. And then my older brother, you know, went to a camp, like went to an all sports camp. And part of it was he had some tennis balls and he liked it and came home and started playing a little bit more. And me being a younger brother, I followed him into it and we liked it and showed some early progress. I mean, I was always, I always had pretty good hand-eye coordination. Then it kind of just spiraled. Like uh, we still played all other sports, but I just picked it up really, we all picked it up really quickly. Uh, We were all good players. My older brother, you know, played in college, played college tennis. My younger brother played college tennis, but you know, tennis is a very unique sport besides the fact that it's individual at a young age. And this is one of the reasons why I think it struggles a bit in America now is that it takes a lot of repetition and a lot of technique. Um, and that's not really a great matchup for this ADHD generation. (laughs) Um, because if you don't have good technique and a foundation, it really limits your ability later on, but there aren't a lot of seven, eight, nine-year-olds that want to do the same thing, you know, a thousand times in a row. So you have to be wired a certain way and you have to have good coaching, but you also have good coaching that that makes it fun enough where it doesn't feel like working for a living at at eight. No, I had a great coach when I was younger that made it fun that I liked. And, you know, I had a great group of kids. That also was something that was fortunate. We uh, put at a tennis club where you had a bunch of older kids that were good and you made it fun. And it was, you know, they were for your friends and you were competitive and you wanted to get better. And I had older and younger brothers playing. So it was just, I just kind of fell in love with the sport, still played all other sports, um, but just fell in love with it. And, you know, then did very well, probably better than we even thought, because we didn't know it. We didn't know anything about it. It's like, think about like, if you're no one in your family ever played basketball. And then like you went to your first AAU game and you dominated it. People were like, all of a sudden they're like, well, who's that kid? Like, we had no idea. Like we had no history in it. We're just like, okay, go to court two and play this guy. Like, okay. And beat him. Well then afterward, like 
you know who that kid was? He was a hot shot from Texas. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I don't know that. I just played and beat him. Okay. It just kind of went like that. And then all of a sudden, I'm the best player in the country. You know, it starts with like, okay, first, oh, I'm the best player in my in New Jersey. And then it's like, okay, well, it's like, oh, you should go play the national tournament. It's like, okay, well, you're the best 12-year-old in the country. It's like, oh, okay, well, that's young. You know, there's some kids that are young. It's like, oh, okay, well, then you're the best kid in the country in the 14s and then the 16s. And now people are like in the 18s. And then are you going to turn pro? Then you're number one player in college. And it's just kind of like, then it just like takes a life of your own. And then at that point, you're like, you're all in. And, and I loved it. I mean, I love competing. I love the sport. I love, love trying to excel. And it's just, I don't know how much of it's genetic or how much of it's environment, but it was the same thing with school. It was the same thing with anything, whether it was, I was playing checkers or hopscotch or whatever, whatever it was, school, you know, whatever it was, I uh, did the best, you know, really tried hard and wanted to work at it and competed hard. And I just loved it. I, I think sports are so great for kids. I w- didn't have a quote unquote normal childhood. I wasn't, I wasn't going to, you know, every party or every, you know, we weren't taking cruises or going to uh, Florida or the Caribbean because all holidays were based on tennis tournaments. And looking back now that I'm a father, the sacrifices that my parents made, I mean, three kids, tournaments, being on the East Coast, almost wow. all the all the tournaments are in New York or Long Island. We're all playing different age groups. I mean, one tournament's in Long Island, another one's in New York City, another one's in New Jersey. I mean, the, the commitment that parents make to help their kids excel is exceptional. But my parents also demanded, my, they were both educators. My mom was a teacher. Uh, my dad was um well, he was a phys ed teacher and then the high school basketball coach. But, you know, we went to top level private schools. Um, I actually graduated high school early. It, school was so good that I got my core curriculum done so early. I was done at 16. I went to one of the best high schools in the country, private school called Newark Academy. We won the state championship. One of the neatest things, me and my brothers all played in the same team and we won the high school state championship. And then I was going to decide if I was going to turn pro or go to college. And I I got my first recruiting letter from UCLA when I was 10. Oh my goodness. That, and that's pretty young. Is that normal age that kids would see recruiting letters for university or sorry, for college at 10 years old? I don't, I don't know. I didn't have, I didn't have much of a point of reference. Let me put it that way. Yeah, sure. um, I do have a letter from Notre Dame and a letter from Kentucky for my son when he was three weeks old, offering him a scholarship. So maybe that that's younger. <laughs> wow. Um, that's- that's a little bit younger than that for sure. <laughs> but I think that was a little that was a little bit more of a of a of a spoof, like you know, kind of just being just being funny, you know, kind of, yeah. but you know, just friends of mine over the years have become coaches. But yeah, Rick Patino sent no, not Rick Patino, sorry, John Calipari from Kentucky, sent one, and uh, uh, the basketball coach from Notre Dame sent one, just kind of joking around. But it was it was uh, it was pretty funny. I never took any recruiting trips. My recruiting trip to UCLA consisted of. The coach saying, you know, let's go to a basketball game. He knew I love basketball. And uh, we drove to an apartment complex. And I was like, I didn't know where we were going. He's like, oh, we're just going to meet the friend, have a little lunch first. And just I'll meet you up in the apartment, apartment 3C. And I go up to the apartment and I knock on the door. And it was John Wooden. And ended up spending like three hours talking to John Wooden about sports and life and competing and family. And that's kind of all I needed. Uh, John Wooden. I went to UCLA for two years. Had a great experience. Was a all-American student athlete. Had a highest grade point average of any student athlete. When I was there. I our team was number one in the country. I was I won the NCAA's in doubles. I was number one in singles. And uh, then I turned pro. Yeah, that that kind of brings it up to me starting as a pro at uh, nineteen. Well, definitely more than anybody, you know the pressures of 
trying to really excel in, in this professional career that you wanted to do, but then also balancing school. So maybe you could talk a little bit to our listeners about why you're really passionate about starting a scholarship foundation. And then from there, what you really hope students can get out of receiving that money, what they're hoping to get from it. Well, look, I think, I think giving back, if you have a platform is responsibility. I think that if you have the opportunity to affect change and you've been given a lot, given a lot, whether it's you've been given talent or you've been given opportunity or you've had some success or you have a platform or you've, you have some resources, I think it is a responsibility and, and even almost an obligation, mm-hmm. uh, not in a negative way, but to, to give back to others that haven't had the opportunity. When I first turned pro, I, start, I started a foundation called the Justin Gimmelstab Children's Fund yeah. uh, to, raise, to raise money for the pediatric cancer hospital. My brothers and I were all born there. So that was important to me. And we've done events and we raised over a million dollars for that foundation. But then my dad passed away, which was incredibly, incredibly traumatic. I wanted to do something that kind of honored him and he loved sports and he and he loved loved sports and he always prioritized school and he loved I mean he loved college sports he loved college basketball and he so I wanted to do something that kind of supported the college athlete the student athlete because I know how hard it is I mean it's 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 brutal yeah so that's kind of the first thing I'm hoping to do more I'm, I'm on social media with people that are submitting applications especially during this period of time I mean it's uncertain everyone is I don't care where who you are relatively everyone's struggling financially. So I just thought it'd be a nice time to try and um, help a few people and see how it goes and, and expand the program. I have every intention of expanding the program. You know, this was the first the first initiative. And so whether it goes with, I've been getting some notes from people saying, you know, this is so great, but you know, my child's in high school and could use some help or my child, you know, we could use help with, you know, equipment or other opportunities to try and excel. So we could put ourselves in a better position to get you know, play on our high school team or, or get some students, a college scholarship. So I'll look at all different, different aspects of it, but it's, it's an initiative that I'm, I'm very proud of. And, and really it was, it was completely in honor of my father. Just pivoting kind of back to your pro tennis career. What was your everyday look like back then? Like, did you get up, have a strict kind of fitness routine and then just kind of hit the courts or how, what did that look like? Professional tennis is, is a little bit is different once again, because it's individual and because it's, essentially 47 weeks a year. There's no off season. So you kind of make your own schedule. Mm -hmm. And I really would break it more into like when you're at a tournament or when you're training. So it's two completely different lives. So let's start with training. So if I'm not at a tournament and I'm training, generally you'd have two practice sessions. So you'd wake up, go to your first practice session, which would generally be more like drills and working on some technique or some things. Then, you know, that would be probably about an hour and a half to two hours. Then you'd get lunch. Sometimes you'd take a nap. And then I would, then you usually go out and play something competitively, whether it was points, a practice set, a practice match. And then you do some sort of fitness. And then after that, you probably do some sort of rehab. So there was, you know, stretching, a massage, you know, cold plunge, jacuzzi, something like that to get your body, peel your body and then have dinner and lay around. Because really when you're doing that, you're putting your body under, in your body mind, you're taxing yourself so much, you really have to uh, rest. That's where a lot of the recovery comes from. So it's an, it's a very, it's not, it's not a, it's not a very complicated life in, you know, it's pretty formulaic, you know, not everyone does it that way. There's, you know, some people practice once a day, some people do more fitness. I mean, but that's general. Sometimes, sometimes if you do two a days, a bunch of days, you'll do one tennis, one practice, and then you'll probably take off one day a week. A lot of it depends on how long you have before the next tournament, or if there's a particular stroke that you want to work on, or if you're something that are you, what are you struggling with? Are you struggling with playing points? Are you struggling with your serve? Are you struggling with 
your transition game or you're struggling with your fitness. So you kind of, part, you kind of focus on that, but it's very interesting because after you retire, like it, life is so different. And that's why I, I can think, imagine, I think that's one of the reasons why athletes, some, some athletes really struggle transitioning to post professional athletic life. And some people don't. And that's a big part of what I try and teach people is that, you know, if you use the qualities that allow you to be successful as an athlete, you should be able to be really successful in your next endeavor because think about it. You're dealing with discipline. You're dealing with success. You're dealing with failure. You're dealing with pressure. In a team sports, you're dealing with working with others, you're dealing with leadership, you're dealing with, you know, basically running your own business, which is you. So it's very different. I mean, because when you're a professional athlete, you work very, very hard for a short period of times, and it's all based on you. Your coach is focusing on you. Your trainer is focusing on you. You're focusing on you. You rest in turn to play better. You eat to play better. Like it's, it's very, it's very selfish. It's a very, and it should be, it's a very selfish life. You're, you're, you're managing and saving your energy, you know, even in terms of how you put out energy and engage with other people in order to maximize it for your performance. So it's a very, you know, people, most time people around you are there for you. So it, if you don't, if you're not conscious of realizing the downside of that, making sure you understand that that's just a, that's just part of the professional dynamic, that that's not actually real. And that actually shouldn't be transferred over to personal relationships or should certainly not when you're done playing, you know, you have to really be conscious of that because, you know, if you think that's real life and a lot of times people think it is because from such a young age, they're so catered to, you know, it's, it, that's a, that's a tough habit to break because if you think that's your reality, when you get out in the real world, world it uh, it certainly isn't. Um, but moving on to the schedule, when you do play a tournament, then it's much different because then you're not practicing as much. The thing is you get to a tournament. The first thing you do is get a feel for the courts. Every One of the other challenges, challenges in tennis, every situation, every tournament plays differently. Even if besides the fact that some tournaments are hard courts, some tournaments are clay courts, some tournaments are grass courts, some tournaments are indoors, every single tournament plays differently. And because the balls are different, the temperature is different, the wind is different, the altitude can be different. So, you know, you hit a couple of balls to try and get a feel for the conditions. Then you get your racket strung because you need to get your racket strung to correlate to the conditions, you know, and then hopefully you get a couple of practices in, you get a feel for the ball, you know, then you play a couple of practice sets. You look at the draw, you see who you play. You try and practice with someone who has a similar style. So if you're playing a lefty, you want to try and practice with a lefty. If you're playing with someone who moves well and doesn't hit that hard, you want to play with someone like that. If you're playing with someone that's big and hits hard but makes a lot of errors. So you're, you want to try and – it's like scouting. You want to try and simulate the type of, type of matchup. And then you look to see when you play. And the schedule dictates how you prepare. So if you play a night match, you know, some people will wake up and get a little, you know, little hit you know, for 30 minutes just to break a sweat go back, take a nap, and then come back before they play at night. Some people, you know, if you have an early match, you'll, you know, it, it all correlates to your schedule. You know, it's all based on the same concept of when are you going to warm up? You know, when are you going to eat in enough time where you have the fuel in your system? Prepare your bag, you protect, you know, get your rackets, you get your rackets strong, you have to change your clothes. There's a reason why a lot of tennis players are OCD. You know, it's very routine oriented. It's very repetitive um, because that's one of the things that you could control that helps take some of the pressure away. It's like, it's, I can control this. I can't control how he plays. I can't control if it's hot. I can't control the calls. I can't control, you know, this is what I can control. So, you know, you make your sports drinks, you make sure your, your bags, you know, with your supplements or your energy bars, then you go out there and go compete. And if you win, you do it all again. And if you lose, you evaluate why, and you put your stuff in a 30 C car, you slam the trunk and you get on to the next tournament. 
So it's a lot of it's, it's a lot of it's, it's like a traveling circus and, you know, it's like, it's a combination of a traveling circus and the movie with, um, John Candy and Steve Martin trains, planes, and automobiles. You mentioned that you played in a lot of different tournaments and they all kind of have different conditions. Do you have a favorite tournament that you've played in or a fond memory of tournaments that you'd want to share with our listeners? Sure. Yeah, of course. I mean, obviously everyone knows about the big ones. I mean, Wimbledon is special. I mean, when you play Wimbledon for the first time, or if you're lucky enough to play on center court at Wimbledon, which I put on center court. At, I put on big courts in general, a disproportionate amount to my success level, um, just through happenstance, and also just maybe playing a lot of very good players. People wanting them on on a big court, not because of me. So I played on center court at Wimbledon a bunch. I played Pete Sampras on center court at Wimbledon. I played Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi on center court of the U.S. Open. I played on center court of the Australian Open. I played center court of the French Open. Those tournaments are obviously so special. They have so much tradition. U.S. Open was obviously very close to me because I grew up playing on the East Coast and seeing the US Open was a huge source of motivation for me to to strive for. I want to I want to play at the US Open. I want to be at the US Open. So, you know, as a young kid, you go to the US Open, you dream about playing there. And my first Grand Slam win was at the US Open. I was 18 years old. I'd won the national championships in the 18 division, which gives you a, a, an automatic entry in the pro tournament. But usually, you know, the guy gets his butt kicked. Like if you look at the history of the person who wins that tournament to go play in the U.S. Open, it's like 95% of them lose first round. Oh, wow. Be- well, because, they're, you know, you're kids, you're not fully developed and you're playing full pros and it's your first time playing. And But anyway, I got lucky but played a great match and won this epic match at 18 uh, in five sets, you know, in front of my home crowd. And, you know, have some amazing pictures of my dad coming out to the court and hugging him and just, I still remember it. I could remember, ex- I could remember it exactly. So that was an incredible moment. Playing Pete Sampras on center court at Wimbledon, winning the first set. I got my butt kicked the next three, but, you know, just being on center court at Wimbledon, winning the Australian Open, mixed doubles with Venus Williams on center court, winning the French Open, mixed doubles with Venus on center court at the French Open, playing Davis Cup, representing your country. I had some great experiences playing at the LA Open, which is at UCLA. You know, that was where I was from and I played so many matches there, so I felt comfortable. I beat Andre Agassi there in one of my first pro matches in front of my home crowd or adopted home crowd. Beat Patrick Rafter there once as well, who was two in the world. So yeah, I mean, I just a lot of great experiences. I mean, tennis, everyone wishes they did better. I had some injuries. Everyone wishes they could have done a few things differently. It's like Einstein says, the definition of a true genius is someone that could learn from someone else's mistakes. You know, unfortunately, you usually have to make the mistakes yourself to learn, and I've made plenty. But at the end of the day, I felt fortunate to be a professional athlete and had great relationships and great experiences. I retired in a very special way. And once again, completely lucky. I got to play one of my best friends, Andy Roddick, who's won the U.S. Open. And I played him on center court at night, my last match. And we had this pretty competitive match relative to how much better he was than me. And I remember I almost won the first set. I was up 5-3 in the tie break. And I lost the tiebreak and I lost the next couple sets. And the person interviewed me after and said, well, what would have happened if you won the first set? And I said, I would have lost in four sets. (laughs) But, you know, they ended up, since I, they knew I had a passion for broadcasting, they gave me the mic. Andy and I ended up basically having open mic night 
on center court of the US Open on national television for like 15 minutes. And it was completely organic. It was based on an opportunity that was lucky, but it, but actually I was uniquely prepared for because I'd been injured a bunch the previous couple of years. And I interned at Tennis Channel, really studied broadcasting and was well prepared. It was, it was organic, but I had, it's no different than anything. You know, you do the work, you never know when it's going to, you never know when it's going to necessarily hit or you never know when it's going to, the opportunity is going to arise, but it did that night. I immediately got TV contracts. I immediately got a job with the tonight show. I immediately got a job with tennis channel and it kind of started my post career off with a lot of momentum. So that was definitely what it sounds like a pretty ideal transition in comparison, probably to other individuals who had maybe a harder time. So that was, a, it seemed like the stars had aligned for you in that moment to transition to your next phase in life. So do you feel like starting off in that business coming off being a professional tennis player, was there a certain expectation that people held for you in the broadcast world? Like, do you feel like it was less less pressure, sorry, or did you feel like there was more pressure in a different way? No, I mean, look, there aren't a lot of spots in tennis. You know, tennis is a niche sport. So, you know, it's very competitive, but I loved it. I, I didn't, I didn't really see it that way. Like I, I actually felt less pressure. I, I, I thought I was, I, I actually thought that I would have a better career after tennis. I actually thought that I was better suited to success off court than I was on. And, you know, I thought I was, you know, I was a good player, but you know, I had, I did have that dynamic where I was always the best up to a certain level. And then you turn pro and then you're playing the best of the best. And I was like, and I, and it, I struggled with it because I had always won so much. I probably lost more in the first couple of months as a pro than I did my whole life. So that really jarred me and affected me. But, you know, I, I just didn't, whether it's self-confidence or arrogance or just self-belief, there's a fine line between all of them. Um, I just, I thought I knew the game. I thought I understood presentation and television and I'm, lo I'm very innately curious. I love asking questions. I love doing interviews. I love hearing people's stories. I think it's a huge part of sports is, is creating a personal connection with the fans. So they, they're emotionally invested. Like I learned very on, early on, and I, I believe this in all things in life. Indifference is the enemy, you know, especially in TV now. And you see it with all the, the talk shows and all the, you know, the debate shows. Indifference is the enemy. You know, they don't want, they want people to care one way or the other. They, they want you to root for you uh, because they love you or, or root against you because they want to see you fail. I mean, that's, I don't know that that's great for society or humanity. You know, you see it on social media. I mean, most of it's, you know, very negative, but people want to platform, people want to vent, people want to engage, you know, and that was that part. Then I also saw that, you know, there's a huge opportunity in production, just being around tennis and sports, seeing the value of the actual content. So I mm -hmm. also went into that market and created a company called Without Limits Productions, which I named after from a movie, which I saw, which I loved because I'm a sucker for sports movies. I was based on Prefontaine, who was a middle distance runner, who was a renegade. And I felt a kindred spirit toward, you know, then I did what I, I probably liked the most, which was represent the players. Uh, tennis is a sport where they don't have unions. Uh, the players on the ATP tour actually own half the tour. So it's not oh. like baseball and basketball and uh, football where they have a player's union and then they go to collective bargaining and the owners and so forth. And they have a commissioner and tennis players own half the tour. So I'd seen during the course of my career that the players were poorly represented and it was reflected in their percentage of revenue. It was, it was reflected in, you know, players' rights and, and how the player leadership and player pension contributions, all those things. 
And I understood why. Talent generally loses to ownership if they're not organized and mobilized because ownership has institutional knowledge. Ownership, you know, has the ability to, has more time. I mean, players, it's tough enough to, to compete, you know, it's tough to them to commit time to boardrooms and politics and so forth. But so, but I saw the detriment that it had on players. So I really had a plan to get the top players engaged, which had never really happened. And the other part with tennis that's so tough is that everyone wants different things. I mean, you have top players want more money in guarantees. You have lower rank players want more money in prize money. You have some players want more on clay courts. Some players want more in grass courts. The Americans want more in the U.S. Top players want a shorter schedule. Lower rank players want a longer schedule. Some players want a two-year ranking. Some players want a one-year ranking. So very, very challenging to get individual sport athletes to get on the same page. And the absence of them doing that, or ownership knew they could just divide and conquer them because like, they can't get their stuff together. So you know they're making it easy for us. So I tried to I tried to change that culture, and I'm proud of the fact that me and some others uh, created a team that I think we did. And we we're very fortunate that players like Roger Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, and Andy Murray, and some others uh, committed their time and and believed in our plan, and it significantly the results of what we accomplished for the players was revolutionary. I mean, and the and the results are concrete. What the player representatives accomplished was unprecedented, and it's concrete. It was reflected in just huge increases in prize money in supplementing and compensating player pension, uh, players' rights, player power, the ability for the players to be better supported in every way, whether it's from health, medical services, calendar. And it really happened from just being able to organize and mobilize the players and give them a, a powerful voice. If talent, I mean, talent should have a lot of leverage if it's used in the right way. And fortunately, uh, we were able to have some yeah. success there. And it really kind of changed the way talent and the players, their partnership, what their partnership was with the tournaments. So I think it's interesting that you said that at this point still in those last few years that players still didn't have that representation. But I guess going back to how you said initially when you started off in your tennis career, you really didn't have anything to go off of. You guys were just moving on from one tournament to the next tournament and kind of playing it by year. So it's interesting that now at this point, still you're able to give that back to other players and giving them the advice potentially that you maybe didn't have. Well, that's what was my motivation. I saw during the course of my career, how pathetic the player representation was. I mean, I saw what the percentage of revenue between talent and ownership was. I saw how little power we had and I knew how much power talent could have, but it just, it was just, it was just not being executed. I mean, let me give you an example. I mean, when I played, you get vested for a certain year for your pension contribution. I got about $8,000 a year. Now mm -hmm. the players after what we did get about $60,000 a year. And, you know, we prize money, the percentage of revenue was so low. And you know, by the time we were done, we increased the player compensation by over 100%. Also, overall value to the sport increased as well, but the players were just not getting their fair share of a partnership. And the reason was, is that, like I said, they weren't organized, they weren't mobilized, they, it was easy for the tournaments and the other representatives to divide and conquer them. And quite frankly, 
the other player representatives weren't good enough at their jobs. So I wanted to actually touch on a story that you had mentioned previously. So I can't remember the little boy's name, but you'd mentioned that there was a young tennis player who was really wanting to play tennis, but was in a wheelchair. So you really helped to get him connected to the right individuals to really kickstart his own tennis career. So maybe you could tell us a bit about that. Uh, it's one of the most incredible things I've ever been involved with. And one of the proudest things I've ever been involved with. There's a, this is a long time ago now, but a friend of mine in North Carolina who actually went to UCLA, his name was uh, Bill Barber. He was a good player at UCLA. He got in touch with me. He said, Hey, Justin, I want you to know there's this incredible story. There's this kid who has this disease where he basically doesn't have, you know, any lower extremities. He doesn't have legs and, mm-hmm. but he's playing real tennis tournaments. I mean, he's literally, he's playing real tournaments, you know, wow. and obviously his body, he, he figured it out and, and compensated in certain ways. And he's, he hits the ball and he's beating real players. Now, obviously he wasn't going to be able to do that for much longer. So he asked me if I wanted to do a story on him and I went to go meet him and I was so fascinated by him that I ended up doing a whole show about him In doing it. I introduced him to some players. I did the show and I got Andy Roddick and Jim Curry to play with him. I interviewed his family. I did a whole 30 minute show on him on Connor on the inspiring story of Connor Stroud. And in doing it, you know, I introduced him to wheelchair tennis and introduced him to uh, the, the the tennis, the U.S. Tennis Committee and the Paralympic Committee and focused on stuff like this and got him a wheelchair, explained to him, you know, got him the got him with the group, got him the funding, got him on a team. And I mean, it's completely changed and made his life. He was his passion for tennis was translated and transferred over to wheelchair tennis, and he's one of the best players in the world. And he travels around the world playing wheelchair tennis, representing the United States. And, you know, he's, like I said, he's one of the best in the world. And, you know, I feel like I had a, a small role in it. He's got a beautiful family. He's a great kid. And, um, you know, it's it was really something I'm very proud about. That's an amazing story. People should check it out. I mean, there's a show on it. There's video online, Connor Stroud is on social media, but it's a, it's, it's a heartwarming story. I mean, it's just truly, I mean, you talk about, you know, when you think about sports, you know, people obviously think about LeBron James or Roger Federer, you know, Tiger Woods, but you know, I truly believe sports or even life is about maximizing your ability, your God given ability. I actually believe truly that Connor Stroud is just as successful as LeBron James in terms of by the metrics of what is achievement. And in my view, achievement is maximizing God-given potential. Now, obviously, you know, he doesn't have, you know, a billion dollars and he didn't have X amount of championship rings and he doesn't have, you know, a hundred billion, you know, social media followers. But in terms of maximizing potential, which is what I believe life is about, I think they're (laughs) <laughs> they're comparable. No, definitely. I think I also watched his, the segment on YouTube as well. And just hearing of his story and like the struggles that he went through to be able to accomplish his dreams essentially is something that can motivate a lot of people. And the fact that there's individuals like yourself who are willing to give certain kids a shot that potentially they might not have had prior. And who knows if, if we didn't help each other out, who knows if we would even be better off, right? We wouldn't, we would need those individuals to give us that helping hand. So that's definitely admirable. Well, look, he didn't, he never played in a wheelchair and he wasn't necessarily stubborn, but he obviously wanted to keep playing and it was very unique, but he was going to have limitations, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I did the show. I didn't make any money. I did the show specifically to give him exposure in order to help raise money. I 
got some sponsorship. I gave, you know, I donated it all to, to helping him try and, you know, get started and got him in a wheelchair and connected him with the right people. And, and it was, like I said, a, so I, it's one of those things. Once again, I feel like it's nice that I did it like in, in terms, in theory, like, you know, but it actually was better for me. Like I got mm-hmm. so much, I got so much satisfaction and was so inspired by what who he was and his family. It seems like I'm doing something for them, but they really ended up doing it for me. Uh, so I guess before we kind of round this out, I have one final question for you. Just kind of knowing what you know now, is there any advice that you would give to either your younger self or younger people kind of starting out now? Or I guess anyone starting out in tennis now? Yeah, for sure. Uh, like I said, Einstein said uh, a true genius could learn from someone else's mistakes. I mean, unfortunately, you know, you do generally have to learn from your own. But I do think that's also a role of coaches and mentors to try and curb that, try and help help minimize the mistakes as much as possible. But I would say this, like sports, obviously a huge part of you know sports, the, the main point of sport is winning. But, you know, you have to put it in perspective. I think it's important to realize that you want to do everything you can to be successful. Like I told you, you know, focusing on maximizing potential. I just know when I work with my son now and I want him to be, I want him to, I want to expose him to a lot of sports. I don't necessarily necessarily want him to sacrifice everything to be a professional athlete, but I want him to be, I believe in sports and the value it brings in, in so many different ways. But really, and it sounds corny, but it really is about the process. It really is about working hard. It's really about you know, if you could use sports or all things as a vehicle, as learning experiences, whether it's dealing with adversity or dealing with success or failure. Like when I talk to my son, we talk about four things that, you know, if he's going to do it, that I, that this, I expect. And it, it's never, I've it's never entailed winning. It's, it's work your hardest. It's never give up. Good sportsmanship. It's respect the process, you know, things like that. Like I said, if you're going to do it, I want him to try and do it right. I'm going to make sure he has the right technique. I'm going to make sure that he works hard at it. Um, I'm a big believer in that. But, you know, just be a little easier on yourself. And I, I was very tough. I took losses very hard. You know, I was definitely a, a culprit of tying success to my self-esteem too much and not doing a better job differentiating how I was doing or what I was ranked or how I was as an athlete versus how I was as an overall person, which is, which is understandable. And it's a huge challenge out there. Probably manage my training a little bit better. I think I was incredibly hardworking, but I think it was almost a little too much out of fear and compulsion. So I think I beat my body up a little bit too much. I think listening to your body a little bit more, but that's also changed as we've gotten older with this better sports medicine and better, you know, when I, when I was training, there wasn't as much focus on core and non-weight bearing, you know, things have really evolved over the course of, you know, generations of, of athletics and Pilates and yoga came in later. And I love that stuff and you know, using strengthening your core and, and activating, you know, all your muscles and stuff. Like I, there's, there's, there's lots I would do differently, but at the end of the day, I did the best I could with what I had at the time. I think everyone just has to cut themselves some slack, but yeah, there's things I would do differently, but I'm proud that I, in general, I could say I did the best I could with what I had at the time. I think that's a really good ending for us here, but any last words you want to give to our listeners, Justin, before we end our uh, podcast for today? I think that was a good, I think that was a good finish. I think it was as well. So thank you for listening to our podcast with Justin Gibblestaub. You can look for him on his social media platforms that will list in our description. So take a look at those and uh, have a nice day, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us.